who have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit believe in miracles. I was testifying about these great miracles. We believe that God does great things. And you would think that we ought to be better off than people that don't believe in miracles. But in some ways, the average spirit-filled person is more discouraged and more um, hungry and looking for something than some of the denominational people that don't believe God does miracles. They aren't expecting anything, so they aren't discouraged. They're getting just what they're believing for. But when your faith increases and your expectancy increases, the Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. And if you don't experience the fulfillment of those desires, then you can be discouraged because you haven't gotten over your cold yet, whereas other people don't even think about it. They just go take a, a pill or something and don't even, it doesn't bother them. We've got the potential to be discouraged because we are believing for so much. But at the same time, we've also got the potential of seeing God come through. And uh, we just need to really press through it and get to where we're walking in the abundance that God has for us. Let's turn back over to Psalms chapter 85. This is the scripture I started with last night. We continued on this this morning. Psalms chapter 85, verse 10, I just use this one verse that says, Mercy and truth are meant together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Charlie and Jill sang that song tonight. And last night I spent the whole night just trying to show that these are polar opposites. That mercy and truth can't coexist. Because if you really know the truth about a person, if you are completely pure and holy the way that God is, and if you're faithful and just, and if you cannot lie, how could you ever have mercy on a person that doesn't deserve it? It's not equitable. It's not justice. Righteousness and peace could never meet together. They could never come together. They could never kiss each other because how could you have peace towards a person that is guilty? These are opposites. And I'm saying some things. I've said some things last night and this morning that are radical, radical statements to the average Christian. Things that most of them haven't heard. But it's straight out of Scripture. And the wrath of God is revealed under the Old Covenant primarily. There's a lot of things. I'm saying this very quickly. But it's to show you that you can't save yourself. It's to show the ungodliness. You know, one of the problems that happens is that when sin begins to multiply, it says in the last days that the love of many would grow cold because iniquity would abound. You know why that happens? Because when iniquity abounds, you start seeing people having parades and bragging about things that the Bible says are abomination. You start seeing people, you know, in church, the divorce rate is just about the same as outside of the church. You start having all of these things and you get to where after a while you just lose your, your uh, reference point to what is right and what is wrong. One of the purposes of the Old Testament was to show people that you think you're good. You think that you are, you're just looking around and comparing yourself among other people and you're taking an average and thinking, well, I'm about as good as anybody else and so I think that God's going to accept me if He accepts anybody. See, most people believe God grades on a curve. That he's got to accept somebody. Somebody's got to pass. So even though nobody really had a totally passing grade, God's going to take the top 10 percentile and you get 
to pass. You're, you know, it's going to be based on your works. And so this is how most people evaluate things. I'm not the best. I haven't done everything right, but I'm not the worst. I don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do. And I believe that God is going to accept me. That's deception. We have moved so far away from what God intended us to be that God had to readjust our perspective. He had to bring us back to what right and wrong is. And so God said, you think you're holy. You think that you're good enough. You think that you are going to get in because you haven't killed somebody. See, this is exactly what Cain did. Cain killed his brother and instead of God killing him, God gave him mercy. So Cain's great, great, great grandson came along and he killed a man in self-defense. All of this is listed in Genesis chapter 4. And he felt like his murder was more defendable than Cain's. And so he says if God avenged Cain sevenfold, he's going to avenge Lamech seventy and sevenfold. God didn't say that. What he was doing was comparing himself. And he says Cain killed a person. And he didn't fall over dead. God didn't judge him. So it must not be so bad. And people's standards begin to fall to where they were just living in sin and doing things and and living terrible. And God was extending mercy to people. For 2,000 years, he didn't judge people the way that we see after the law was given. But finally, God had to remove this deception from us. And so God started saying, you do this and you die. Thou shalt not. And he started giving commands. And what it did was bring us back to, whoops, you know what? I don't care what my society says. I don't care who got by with what. This is what God says. And all of a sudden your conscience came back alive. And you begin to realize that I've fallen short of the glory of God. And it's necessary to come to that place so that you quit trying to trust in yourself and your own goodness. You have to come to the end of yourself. So the Old Testament law revealed the wrath and the punishment of God. And most people have misunderstood this. Religion has misunderstood this. And they preach that this is the way that God is. That God is angry. I've actually had people come up before and say that they saw God as an old man with a long beard leaning over a rail in heaven with a lightning bolt in his hand just waiting for you to do something wrong. And bam, here comes the judgment of God and the wrath of God. You'll hear preachers often say this, that if a person leaves our church and if they don't do it for the right reason, they're going to die. God's going to kill them. They aren't going to prosper and they'll do all these kind of things. And, and it's wrong. There were examples like that in the Old Testament and there was a period of time that God did that. But the purpose was to show you that your sin had separated you from God. But that's all prior to Jesus coming. When Jesus came, He totally allowed righteousness and peace to come together. Mercy and truth to meet together. He brought this together in Himself. And I used a bunch of scriptures this morning. I'm not going to use all of that again. But turn back over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and let me just start here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse... 17, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation to wit, that is to know that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespasses unto them. I spent a lot of time about this this morning. That the way God reconciled us, made us friendly, brought us back into harmony with Him, 
was he didn't impute our sins unto us. The word impute means to put on the account, to record against you. God doesn't hold sin against you. But it's not that he just says, all right, I'm going to quit thinking about sin. No, God is holy and just and sin has to be judged. And so it's not that he just says, all right, I'm going to not hold sin against you anymore. What he did, he had to punish sin, but he imputed your sin to Jesus. And Jesus suffered for your sin. And if Jesus suffered for it, you don't have to suffer for it. Jesus didn't just suffer for your sins up until the point that you got born again. And then every time you sin after that, you got to get in under the blood and re-forgiven. And you're just constantly in limbo about whether your relationship with God is good. Because have you got every sin confessed? Is everything dealt with? Are you doing everything that you should? No, according to the scripture, I'm not going to teach on this tonight. But according to Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10, Jesus forgave all of your sins, past, present, and even future sins have already been forgiven. He wiped out all of your sins. Somebody says, now how could he forgive a sin that I hadn't committed yet? You better hope he can forgive a sin that you haven't committed yet because he only died for sin one time 2,000 years ago before you were born. God dealt with all sin of all men for all times and your sins have been wiped out. And he imputed your sin to Jesus. Jesus suffered what you should have suffered so that you don't have to suffer. And if you are suffering because of sin, well, then you're voiding what Jesus did. And it says this over in Galatians chapter 2. It says if, if uh, righteousness come by the law, which is talking about if you could earn right standing with God through your own actions, then Christ is dead in vain. It says in Galatians chapter 5 that whoever of you is trusting in the things that you are doing, Christ is without effect unto you. Christ is dead in vain. You can void what Jesus has done for you if you are trusting in your own goodness. You need to recognize that Jesus did it all for you. All for you. All of it. That's what this is talking about. That God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. God's already reconciled you to Him now. You need to be reconciled. You need to reconcile yourself. You need to come back into harmony. Boy, that's important. I just don't feel like the majority of people understand what I'm saying here. The war is over from God's perspective. But it's not over from our perspective. Most of us still are expecting retribution, rejection, punishment. We are still living as if God is angry at us, but it's not so. We are ambassadors... For Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ that be reconciled unto God. For He, God the Father, hath made Him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus became sin for us. He didn't just take a little bit of sin. Jesus became sin. Jesus became a sinner. Now understand what I'm saying. Jesus himself did not sin. Jesus was pure and holy and he was spotless. But he took our sin upon himself. 
and he became a sinner. And when he hung on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was a quotation from Psalms chapter 22. And in Psalms chapter 22, let me just read this passage to you. It's a prophetic Psalm. And in Psalms 22, there's like five or six different things said in Psalms 22 that Jesus quoted on the cross and things that happened. It says he gave him golf to drink and not one of his bones was broken. All of those things are recorded here. But in Psalms chapter 22, it starts in verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the work, words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night seasons, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabits the praises of Israel. Did you know that answers why God forsook him? Because Jesus became unholy. Jesus, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, was made to be sin for us. And holy God had to reject His Son because His Son didn't just become sin in a figure, in type, in symbolism, but the sin of the entire world entered into Jesus. And Jesus became vile. I don't know if you can appreciate this. Many of us have never gone there in our mind because we see Jesus as holy and pure, and He is. He's the Son of God. But He became sin for us. He took our sins into His own body. This is unpleasant for some of you to think about, but you need to confront this, that you know Hitler, all of the demonic, vile things that he did, the way that they kill people and destroy people. We were just over in uh, Europe and saw the Battle of the Bulge where there was 10 times as many Americans killed there as there was at Normandy. And terrible things happened. All of those things that Hitler was responsible for. Did you know Jesus became responsible for that? Jesus became a mass murderer, became a rapist, became a homosexual became an adulterer, became a liar, became a thief. Holy, pure Jesus, who had never done anything wrong, God manifest in the flesh, operating out of nothing but total love, became everything that He hated, everything that was contrary to His nature. He took your sin and my sin into His own body on the tree. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, but... He took our sins in His own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we were healed. He took our sin. He didn't suffer for Himself. He didn't suffer for any injustice or inadequacy. When He was standing before Pilate, Pilate was mar marveled at Him and He says, Why don't you say anything? Don't you know that I have power to release you and to kill you? And Jesus didn't say anything. He didn't open His mouth like a lamb before His shears. Because if he would have spoken in his own defense, nobody could have stood against his words. Nobody could have killed him. There was a number of times that he walked right through the midst. Jesus gave himself willingly. Nobody took his life from him. He gave it and he became sin. I don't know if you get that, but he became sin. He took every vile thing on him. And this is why God had to turn away because God is holy that inhabits the praises of his people Israel. And holy God 
had to reject sin and Jesus became sin. God the Father rejected Jesus so that you would never be rejected. If you are bearing rejection, if you feel like God doesn't love you, then in a sense you're avoiding what Jesus has done. In your life, you can't change what He did overall, but as far as your life is concerned, you're just voiding it. You're negating it. I'm telling you that Jesus bore the wrath of God. Look at this verse over in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, this is right before the crucifixion of Jesus. And Jesus was speaking in front of a multitude. He had a lot of people around him. And he said, Father, glorify thy name. And a voice out of heaven came and said, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. It was the audible voice of God. And did you know that some people doubted that that was really God? (laughs) Boy, I could preach on this for days. But you know what? If your heart is hardened, if you're full of unbelief, if you heard an audible voice from God, you'd find a way to explain it away. If you saw Lazarus raised from the dead, some of the very people that saw Lazarus raised from the dead went to the chief priest and consulted how they could kill Lazarus and Jesus. They saw a man raised from the dead after four days. Pastor Dave was down here telling me about a man raised from the dead in their church service. And I said, well, that should have increased your crowd. And he said, nope, it didn't. It's, it's indicative of our society today. There are people... There are some of you that have seen these miracles. You've got Margaret over here who has stood up and testified that she had Parkinson's and can barely get around. Now she's dancing and some of you sit there and think, well, she must not have really had it very bad. I wonder if a doctor's confirmed it. You had this young man back here, a doctor has confirmed that his scoliosis is gone and there's some of you that thought, I bet you was misdiagnosed. You know what? If you don't believe God... Things won't force you to believe God. You have to choose to believe God. You have to seek faith. It doesn't come automatically. It's, con- it's contrary to fallen human nature. You have to choose to believe God. If you just indulge your doubts, if you feed your doubts, they'll grow. You have to starve your doubts and you have to feed your faith. It has to be a choice. These people heard the audible voice of God and they still didn't believe it. And Jesus said, this voice didn't come for my sake, but for your sake. In other words, Jesus didn't need it. He already knew what the Father thought about him. But this voice came for those who were sensitive, those who had a heart to receive it, just as a confirmation to them. And then he said in verse 30, Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. You know, this word men in verse 32 is italicized. And the significance of this is that the translators, the King James translators, most other translations don't do this. But the King James translators were at least honest enough to admit when they inserted a word for clarity. Like, for instance, when uh, the people came to arrest Jesus and they, he said, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. The word he is italicized because it wasn't in the original language. What he really said was, I am. The great I am. He just spoke, I am. And boom, 60 people fell to their backs. 
But they inserted the word he because to make it grammatically correct, it's correct to say I am he. So it was an understood thing. And, but they were at least honest enough to put it in italics to let you know that they inserted it. And sometimes you need to insert words in the English to make it grammatically correct that may not have existed in the Greek. And so I don't have a problem with that. But you need to look at this. It says that when I will draw men unto me, the word men is italicized. That was added. They put that in there to help you understand what he was drawing unto himself. But I believe in this instance, they missed that. Because the verse in front of it, look at this in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. The next verse, verse 32, it says, Then saith he, this saith he, signifying what death he should die. See, this verse has been interpreted. People say that if you'll just preach Jesus, and if you will proclaim Jesus and magnify him properly, God will draw all men unto those that are preaching Jesus. That's not true. You can look at the biggest churches in the United States today, and they are not the best proclaimers of Jesus. Matter of fact, I won't mention this man's name, but many of you will know who I'm talking about. The man who kind of pioneered the seeker-friendly churches where you just put, make it into a spectacle and it's all uh, exciting and you have a performance and little 20-minute sermons. He did that 20-something years ago trying to draw large crowds, and he did. He drew twenty and 30,000 people to his church, and he just this last year came out and said it's a failure. We've drawn people, but we have not discipled them. It's not working. And the man who pioneered the seeker-friendly churches saying it's not working, we aren't making con- uh, disciples, we're making converts. It doesn't work. The largest churches are not the ones with the right message. They're the ones that have the message that's feel-good, motivational. This is not saying that if you'll just preach Jesus, you'll have the biggest church, he'll draw all men unto him. That's not true. What this is talking about, it's talking about judgment, the verse before. It's talking about judgment, the verse after, about Him being crucified. This is saying that, Jesus is saying, and I, when I be lifted up, which verse 32 says lifted up, is talking about His crucifixion. When I get crucified, I'm going to draw all judgment unto me. That was the subject of the verse in front and the verse behind. All of God's wrath. All of God's judgment against sin, all of your sin, all of my sin, the sin of the entire human race, all of it, not a portion of it, all of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross. Not a portion of it, all of it. There is nothing left. God's wrath has been satisfied. God's not angry anymore. He's not even in a bad mood. He's not dangling America over hell with a thin thread that's on fire and saying, repent or else, turn or burn. God has already, His wrath has been satisfied. America is not living godly. We have rejected God. We're becoming increasingly ungodly and there's reason for concern. If we don't change, we don't have to worry about somebody else destroying us. We're destroying ourselves. I'm not saying that everything's fine in America, but I'm saying that God's wrath has been poured out on Jesus and God's not going to judge America. I used to tell people, if God doesn't judge America, you'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's back before I fully understood what Jesus came to do. Now I say that if God does judge America, He's going to have to apologize to Jesus because He put His wrath against everything that America is doing on Jesus. 
And God's wrath has been satisfied. The only wrath left in God is for those who reject Jesus as their Savior. He's not mad over our individual sins. The sins of the whole world have been paid for. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says that He is the propitiation. That means the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The sins of the whole world. Not only Christians, but non-Christians have had their sins paid for. God's wrath has been satisfied. God is not angry over your sin. The only thing that can get the wrath of God going is a person who takes this huge price that he paid for our sins and ignores it or rejects it. All of his wrath is centered over people that reject Jesus. And he's restraining himself until the second coming and then he's going to separate the sheep from the goats and there will be judgment against those that reject Jesus. But right now we're living in a day of grace. God's not the one that's causing the problems in America. I have people all of the time come and say that every time America does something against Israel that we have a major problem like the tornadoes or the uh, hurricanes and on and on. And without saying it, what they're saying is this is the judgment of God. You know what? God's not judging America. Am I saying that we shouldn't be supporting Israel? No, the Bible says you're blessed if you support them, you're cursed if you don't. So I'm on the side of blessing them. I'm for Israel, okay? But I'm not sitting here saying that God is the one that's causing these problems and judging us. God has already judged Jesus. All of His wrath, all judgment came on Jesus. All of it. It was like a lightning rod. A lightning rod attracts lightning so that it can protect the thing that the lightning rod is there to protect so that all of the lightning will be drawn to that one source and put down into the earth so that it won't destroy your home or something else. Jesus was a lightning rod for all of God's wrath and all of God's wrath came against Jesus. God's not angry at you. Some of you are just shocked like... If I, if I believe that, what's going, to hold, what's going to hold me back from living in sin? How about thankfulness and appreciation and love that Jesus became sin so that you wouldn't have to do it? Most people are motivated to serve God out of fear. If you don't do this, God's going to get you. And you know what? You can even get a lost man to give out of fear. Tell them, if you don't give, the wrath of God's coming on you. If you don't pay your tithes, God will take it out in doctor bills. If you don't pay your tithes, God's going to make your car break down. He's going to get your, his 10% one way or the other. You know what? You preach that and you can get a lost man to give 10%. But according to the Bible, the motive is more important than the action. If you give all of your goods to feed the poor, if you give your body to be burned, it profits you nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, 3. Jesus said, or uh, he spoke through uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 that God loves a cheerful giver. He loves people. It's the attitude that you give with. God isn't concerned about it. If an unbeliever is giving 10% because they've been badgered into it, it might help the church. It might help the minister that coerces it, but it's not going to help God. It's not going to bless him. He won't prosper you. It doesn't have any benefit to it. That's why 
that there's more to just prosperity than give and you shall receive. If that's all there was, every person in here would probably be a millionaire right now if you had a hundredfold return on everything that you've ever given. But the attitude that you give in can totally void the promise of God. Can totally negate it. And most of us have negated it because we've given as debt. We've given as an obligation. We've been told we're cursed with the curse if we don't give when the truth is that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. And we've given with the wrong motivation and it profits us nothing. The same thing is true that if you are trying to serve God, but if you're doing it out of fear, if you are serving God because He's going to punish you or judge you or you've got to do these things, you've got to read the Bible in order to get your prayer answered, it profits you nothing. The only Christianity that really profits you is when you do it with the right motivation of the heart. So it's only the people who are serving God out of love that are really connecting with God and having anything. we got... Huge amounts of religious people that are serving God out of fear. And it profits them nothing. And it's like the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, that it's like sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. It doesn't ring true. It's not life. It's not setting anybody free. If you could understand that God put all of His judgment on Jesus. Jesus became every vile thing that you've ever done. You know, we got all the preachers, staff members sitting on the front row. The holy folks. (laughs) And I guarantee you, if we were to just go down the road on the front row with the preachers, and if somehow or another you could reveal every thought, every action, every vile thing that has ever been done, everything that has never come to light, I guarantee you... It'd be terrible. Mercy. And I'm talking about just 10 or 15 people here. Jesus became all of that. He bore everything. And much, 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 much more multiplied by billions of people that have lived and ever will live on the face of the earth. Jesus bore all of that. And he, he, all of God's wrath came on him, so much so that God turned his back on his own son. Turned his back because God was holy and Jesus became totally defiled and unholy. Not because of his own sin, but because of our sin being placed on him. Look over in Isaiah chapter 52. You know, I've taught on this in a number of series. I'm not going to go through everything in every detail, but I want to go through some of these scriptures very quickly to just once again amplify that all of God's wrath came on Jesus. And if you could ever get a picture of this, I tell you what, the only appropriate response is just to humble yourself and and rid yourself of all guilt and condemnation because Jesus paid it all. And by you bearing it still, it is dishonoring what Jesus did. It's negating what He's done. In Isaiah chapter 52, I wish I had time. If you were to go back to Isaiah chapter 40, All of these verses are all prophecies about the Messiah. John quoted from these verses. Isaiah chapter 52, I think, or 50 is where Jesus spoke on the cross. Where is he that will contend with me? Let us come together. In other words, make my day. Man, that shows you his attitude. 
Amen. These are direct quotes from Jesus written prophetically by Isaiah the prophet. And in Isaiah chapter 52, down in verse 13, it says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred. In other words, he's talking to the nation of Israel and he says in the same way that there was a prophecy that said people would walk by Jerusalem and wag their heads, shake their heads like how could the jewel of the whole earth, this place that was more favored than any place on the face of the earth, how could it be reduced to rubble? How could it be ruined? People would wag their heads and say, how could this have happened? People were astonished at the shame, at the disgrace that came on the people of God because they forsook the covenant and walked away from it. And he says, in the same way that you've borne shame, in the same way that people have been astonished at you, Jesus would bear that shame. He would take all of these things on himself. And it says here, his visage, that's talking about his face, was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. You know, we could spend all night talking about that one verse. Most people just read over this and don't think about it. But it says that his face was marred more than any person's face that has ever lived on the face of the earth. You know, recently I saw a thing on the internet where they had these people that had warts and gross on them, on their hands, face, all over. And it was grotesque looking. Jesus was marred more than that. Personally, I believe that that was a result of the curse of the fall and Jesus bore that curse for us. And I believe that those things, all of these gross and disfigurements came on him. People that had tumors on their face. I had a man come to one of my meetings who had a towel over his face and he was talking to me and wanted prayer. And uh, I couldn't understand him. And I tried and finally I said, you're going to have to remove the towel. I cannot understand you. And when he removed the towel, cancer had eaten his nose and cheek and lips away. And you could see this raw flesh on his face. You could see up into him. I don't even know how he was alive. But his face was gone. It was grotesque looking. In that same meeting, I had a doctor come who wanted prayer and cancer had eaten his eyeball out and had taken over half of his face. And he had this raw cancer laying there that was bleeding. I've seen some grotesque looking people. Jesus was marred more than that. You know, the show that... um, Who was the guy that Mel Gibson did on The Passion of the Christ... There was a lot of Christians that thought that was over the top and it was too graphic. Mel Gibson had to say himself that he had to tone it down or it would have been triple X-rated and nobody would have come. When I saw that show, again, I'm not criticizing his ability because you're just limited to try and portray something only in the physical that was spiritual. And so I don't... I mean, I think it accomplished some good things. I'm sure there was a lot of people touched through that. But it wasn't even close to portray in the neutrality that Jesus went through. Jesus suffered more than that. And it goes on to say, not only was his face worse than any other person's face, it says his form more than the sons of men. I think it's the NIV that says it was beyond human recognition. He didn't look human. You know, in that show, The Passion of the Christ, Jesus was hanging on the cross. Is this the NIV? Marred beyond human likeness. 
Jesus in that show, The Passion of the Christ, still looked like a human. He looked brutalized and bleeding, but he still looked human. Did you know that the reality, Jesus, didn't even look like a man hanging on the cross? I believe that every one of these gross that I was talking about came on him. Elephantitis. I saw a thing on the internet also about a woman that something happened and her legs just grew huge. They were out of proportion to her body. Her, and uh, it was grotesque looking. All of that happened to Jesus. His body swelled. He didn't even look like a human being hanging on the cross. What the Romans did to him, as bad as it was, isn't even close to the suffering that he went through. He suffered the sin, the sickness of every human being who has ever lived on this earth coming into his physical body so that his face looked worse than any human face has ever looked in the history of the world. His body was so marred that it didn't even look human. And when a person sees that and then says, oh, I'm just not sure that Jesus could forgive me, that God could forgive me, I just don't understand that. That's like you are lifting your sin up and saying, look how bad my sin is, instead of looking at the huge price that was paid. One drop of Jesus' blood was worth more than all of the sin of the human race. His blood was so pure. His life was so pure. We can't even understand or relate to it, but He was so pure that one drop of His blood more than paid for all of our sins. If you had one of these scales up here, you know, that had a fulcrum in the middle and you had these scales on each side, and if you were to put the sins of the world over here on one side and then put one drop of Jesus' blood, boom, it would outweigh it all. What Jesus paid, more than paid for your sins. It didn't even come close. It's not like somebody who's gone out and raped and murdered and plundered saying, well, I'm just not sure that God could forgive me. You have, you have disesteemed the death. You have missed. You do not have a revelation of what Jesus paid. Jesus more than paid. That would be like you going up to pay for something that costs $10. And you, you don't have enough. You only got $9 and you're worried about it. And I come up and I just throw down a million dollars and say, here, will this cover it? Well, yeah, I think a million dollars. You know, it's more than covering it. That's what Jesus did. Jesus gave his life and it more than paid for your sins. So that when you come before God, sin conscious and, oh God, I'm so unworthy. How could you ever love scum like me? What you are doing, you're magnifying your sin instead of magnifying the payment for your sin. And I know that this isn't intentional, but nonetheless, here's the, here's the bottom line, that in a sense, our sins are bigger to us than Jesus and what He paid, and that's wrong. You need to recognize that what you've done is insignificant compared to the price that was paid for your redemption. Jesus has bought you back. His face was marred more than any man. His form, he didn't even look human. In verse uh, 14, As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. Going down into chapter 53, I need to hurry through this. But in chapter 53, he starts off by saying, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? 
This is Isaiah. He had been prophesying since chapter 40 about all of the things that the Lord would do. In chapter 40, he says, Speak unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that she has had double payment for what was due. That's talking again about Jesus. Jesus more than double paid what was owed. He more than compensated for your sins. And he's been saying all of these wonderful things. And when he came to this part about his face was marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of man. He basically just stopped and he says, who could believe this? Who's going to believe what I'm saying? Who can believe that God Almighty would come down and become a human being and instead of coming down here in glory and power and strong armament, strong armament and making us bow the knee and do this, who can believe that God is going to come humbly and yield himself and suffer the payment for our sins? Get beat up and brutalized for what he didn't do. Who can believe that God would be like this? You know, out of all of the religions on the face of the earth, there isn't a single religion that has ever had this concept. That God would come and humble himself and take our place and suffer the punishment that you and I deserve. Every other religion, every other religion without exception, they acknowledge that there is some supreme being, but you have to do things to appease this supreme being and all of the burden is upon you. Christianity is the only religion, if you want to use that word, that even has the concept that God would come down and pay our debt and then give us right standing with Him simply by faith. It is a unique concept. And out of the hundreds, the thousands of other religions, nothing else even approaches this because you know what? It, man, in all of his weirdness, with all of his imagine, can't even imagine something this wonderful. This is what Isaiah is saying. Who can believe this? Who's going to believe our report? Man, this is amazing. He just is overwhelmed. Who can believe this report? Who can see the power of God in this and understand this? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. Again, if we would have been God coming to this earth, we would have come down in some majestic way. We would have landed on a space shuttle. We would have done something that would have wowed the people. We would have shown them all the technology and done all of these things. Jesus grew up as a little baby, born to poor parents. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a stable. Exactly opposite the way that most of us would have done. We didn't proclaim. We would proclaim our own goodness, our own glory. Jesus came humbly. He, was me- he said of himself, I'm meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest unto your souls. God is not the way that God has been represented. He's a humble. He's a meek God. That's amazing. Jesus came down. He grew up like a plant. Just like any other plant. Out of dry ground. He didn't come to the palace. He didn't come to the most famous place. He, he grew up in obscure deals. Surrounding situations. This is amazing. He hath no form or comeliness. You know what that's talking about? He's not the greatest specimen. If I would have been God coming to this earth, I guarantee you there would have never been a man like me. I would have been Hercules. I would have been the strongest, biggest, best. Jesus didn't have 
a form. He was not a great person to look at. And when it says there's no comeliness, that means beauty. Jesus wasn't a pretty person. Jesus wasn't a, a beautiful person. He was plain. And you know, this is all... Jesus didn't only suffer on the cross, which I'm not trying to minimize that, but Jesus suffered in just coming to this earth, in just being a man. For God Almighty to limit Himself to a body and enter into a body and have to be in one place at one time, that was a huge constraint upon God. And to be walking by people, just think of the people, there's hundreds of people in this room. If Jesus was here according to this, you know, Jesus could walk up and down these aisles and He could have been your Creator and you would have just not even noticed Him. Jesus walked past people, bumped into people. People probably came into the carpenter shop and bought materials and stuff and didn't even know that the person that was working on their table was their Creator. Think what that would be like to live 30 years and see all of this and not these people don't even know who you are. You see people dying around you. And you, it's not time for your ministry yet. You came to destroy him that had the power of death, and yet you sit and watch people die. You watch anger and bitterness. You watch the Romans brutalize the Jews, and you do all of this stuff, and it's not your time. And you just sit there knowing that you could change all of this. Man, the, Jesus suffered for 30 years living in this physical body. And when we see Him, there is no beauty that we should be desiring Him. Jesus was not a desirable person, just in the physical, outward person. He is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Jesus didn't suffer because of his sin, because he had done something wrong. Jesus suffered your shame, my shame. He was afflicted for us. Jesus' heart was broken. It says in um, John chapter 11, verse 35, that Jesus wept. He didn't just have a tear roll down his eye. He wept. Not for his own grief, but for the grief of Mary and Martha and his friends. Jesus bore our sorrows and carried our grief. I tell you, I just don't... Once you see this, it's hard for you to sit there and indulge your feelings and say, but look what they've done to me. Look what I've suffered. Look at the pain that I've had. And I'm not denying that we have pain, but when you see what Jesus has suffered, it makes what you're suffering really inconsequential. Jesus has already borne it. And if Jesus has borne it, I'm not going to bear it. I'm not going to grieve. And yet there's many people that think, well, I've got to grieve. No, you don't. Jesus bore your sorrows and carried your grief. If Jesus bore it, I'm not going to bear it. In verse 4, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we did esteem Him stricken of God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. This isn't only talking about spiritually, emotionally. Matthew chapter 8 verse 17 quotes this verse and says, He bore our infirmities and carried our sicknesses. 
This is talking about physical healing. In verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one into his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. That means that he wasn't imprisoned. He wasn't given a fair trial. It was totally unjust, everything that happened unto him. And who shall declare his generation? Contrary to the Da Vinci Code, he never had any children. That's what this is talking about. He never had any children. Anytime anybody starts with a premise like that, you ought to write Ichabod over the whole thing and throw it out. Shame on you if you bought the book and paid that guy for that perverseness. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he, was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Well, what a great prophecy. What a specific prophecy. All of these things, there are some amazing things said. Who could believe that God would be marred? more than any man and didn't even look human. Who would believe that he wouldn't have any form or comeliness, that we wouldn't esteem him? How could this, this is hard to wrap your brain around. But here's a prophecy that in his death, he's going to die with the wicked and with the rich. How do you get something like that fulfilled? Well, the way it happened was he was crucified with thieves, the wicked, and yet a rich man gave him his tomb to be buried in, Joseph of Arimathea. This is such a specific prophecy. Man, this shows you the inspiration of the Word of God. It shows you that this is not a human book. This is God-breathed. It's inspired. Hundreds of years before the fact. It even talks about over there in in Psalms chapter 22. I didn't read all of those verses. But it says that they were going to gamble. They'll cast lots for my cloak. And they, they tore all of Jesus' garments except his outer cloak. And it was, a, it was an expensive cloak that was woven without seam. And so instead of tearing it and defiling it, they cast lots for it and fulfilled. Psalms chapter 22 that was written, I don't know, nearly a thousand years before. Man, the Word of God is inspired. In verse 10 it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord. I don't believe that this means that God actually got pleasure out of Jesus' suffering, but it was the only way to bring God's judgment to an end. God was holy. God was just. Sin had to be judged, and He didn't want you to suffer for your sin. And so it was the only way, and therefore it was pleasing to God. It was acceptable to God. This was His plan, was to send His only Son. God so loved the world that He gave us His Son, and He died for us. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Notice it says that when he sees the travail of his soul, he will be pleased. You don't have to travail. You don't have to bear your sin. You don't have to bear your shame. Jesus bore it for you. In the Old Testament, when people came before the Lord and they brought an offering, 
the priest would stand there and they would hold a lamb and the priest would examine the lamb and according to the scripture, he had to be without blemish. He couldn't have any cuts. He couldn't have any bruises. He couldn't be deformed in any way. It had to be a perfect specimen. And when you brought a lamb, the priest would always examine the sacrifice to see if it was without blemish. They didn't examine the person that brought the sacrifice. They didn't ask you, have you been living holy? Have you been doing this? Have you done all of this? No, the very fact that you had a sacrifice in your hand meant that there was some unholiness in you. The priest doesn't examine you. The priest examines the sacrifice. And the sacrifice had to be without blemish. He sees the travail of his soul and he's satisfied because the sacrifice bore your sins. And when the priest would offer those sacrifices, they would lay their hands upon the head of the animal. And you know what that was symbolic of? They would put their weight on this. They would transfer their weight to this animal. Symbolic that you were putting your sins into this animal and then they'd slit the throat of that animal. And that animal would suffer what you were supposed to suffer. In Hebrews, it reveals that no animal could ever truly bear the sins of people. They were only symbolic But Jesus wasn't symbolic. He drew all wrath unto Himself. Every bit of God's wrath against you was put on Jesus. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, if you understand, if the Holy Spirit would help you to get a revelation of what I'm talking about, the only appropriate response to this is that you ought to give your life to God and spend the rest of your days serving Him and loving Him and thanking Him This shouldn't free you to go live in sin. If you're thinking, oh, this is great. He took all my sins so I can go live like the devil. You've never been born again. You're religious. You're deceived. You're headed to hell. If you're looking for an excuse to sin, if you're trying to figure out how I can get by with doing a little bit more, how little do I have to give, you ought to be born again. Once you understand that Jesus paid it all for you, it'll cause you to give everything. I had a man get born again in my meetings and he was so thrilled that he had gotten saved that he he just signed his entire... He had his paycheck in his pocket, two weeks worth of paycheck. And he signed it over to us and gave us the whole thing and put it in the offering. And we, we had to go look him up the next day. We called him and found him and said, Hey, it's wonderful that you're born again and want to give, but you don't have to give 100%. God just asked for 10%. And an offering. And we thought this guy was just overly zealous. And he says, you know what? I can afford it. And he says, God's done so much for me. He says, I want to give him everything I've got. See, that's the way that a born again person is. A religious person is, do I have to give 10%? You can hear Lincoln scream as they let go of that penny in there. You ought to get born again. And then it'll be like it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the last verse, it says, Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. After talking about finances for two chapters, he ends it by saying, Man, the reason we give is because look what God has done for us. If He's given His life, if He was marred more than any man, if He didn't even look human, if He suffered all of these things, if He bore my sorrows and carried my griefs, if all of the wrath came on Him. The least I can do is honor Him with the first fruits. The least I can do is give back to Him. You know, if Christianity was preaching salvation this way, 
I believe it would cause people to fall in love with God and you'd serve God better accidentally than you ever have on purpose out of fear. Love is a stronger motivation. And brothers and sisters, if you understood this, you ought to just you ought to be rejoicing. You need to get rid of this condemnation. A lot of the condemnation that Christians are bearing comes from religion. Preaching the Old Testament, which there's a place for the Old Testament, but it is not the New Testament. We are under a new covenant. Those people hadn't had an atonement made for their sins, and so they were under the wrath of God. And it teaches us examples, and there's things to learn from it. But the new covenant is better. And we have to interpret all of those things in the light of the fact that Jesus has now borne our sins and that He's borne our shame. All of God's wrath came on Jesus and there isn't any wrath left for you. Man, that's awesome. Thank you, Jesus. And you know, this makes me just want to serve God more. When I bring my wife flowers, I gave her some flowers recently. That doesn't make her want to say, oh man, I'm going to go out and commit adultery because he gave me these flowers. When you, give, when you do things for people, when you show your love to people, did you know what? It makes people love you back. And yet the religion's saying, if you tell people this, they're going to go out and live in sin. That's like saying, don't bring your wife flowers. Don't give them presents. Don't ever say, I love you. Don't be kind because that may make them want to go sin. No. Treating people good. Showing people the goodness of God leads men to repentance. Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Showing people how much God loves you is what will turn people's lives and draw them to God. You can draw more, uh, you know, you can draw more flies, I guess, with honey than you can with vinegar. You can attract more people talking about the goodness of God than you can talking about the wrath and the judgment of God. God's wrath has come on Jesus. And just like those verses I read out of 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors. We should be speaking what? Our country tells us to say, not what we think. We ought to be representing another person. You know, I was over in Belgium a couple of weeks ago and I was preaching and the guy who was interpreting for me didn't do a good job. I'm not real demonstrative. I don't scream and yell, but I do get a little excited. <laughs> and I'd say, thank you, Jesus. And he'd, he'd go, whatever, you know, in that language. And just, it was so bland. It, he would whisper and it was nothing. And finally, a couple of things I wanted to say. He says, I don't want to say that. You know what? They replaced him. They gave me a new interpreter. Because an interpreter isn't, you aren't supposed to be portraying your personality. You're supposed to be interpreting for the for the other person. Some of the other interpreters, every time a person would go like this, man, they would go like this. The person would move and they had move and they were just mimicking them exactly. We're supposed to be interpreters for the Lord. We're supposed to be telling people what God has to say. And this is what God has to say. That He is not imputing man's sins unto them. He is not holding your sins against you. There should be no more sin consciousness. We are ambassadors. We're interpreters. We're supposed to be speaking His message. And not our message. Not religion's message. We need a revolution. We need a radical change in the body of Christ. People that will stand up and say, Jesus paid it all. It's all paid for. 
You need to just humble yourself and receive it and quit trusting and promoting your own goodness. I tell you, when you do this, it changes everything. Isn't that good news? I just pray that the Holy Spirit gives you revelation of what I was talking about tonight. I know it's simple, but it's profound. And it's things that most people haven't really thought of. Most people still are more overwhelmed with their ungodliness than they are the payment that was made for your ungodliness. And you need to change that. The payment is much greater than the debt. It just ought to overwhelm it so that you aren't even conscious of it. That's good news. You know, if there's anybody here tonight who's never been born again, you need to be saved. And if you've understood what I've said, Jesus has already paid for your sins. It's not about whether you've done so much that God couldn't forgive you. God's already forgiven you. If you go to hell, you'll go to hell for rejecting Jesus, not for your individual sins. And if you understand that, well then all that's left to do is to humble yourself and make Jesus your Lord. And I know that this is a Friday night and that you're the cream of the crop... But you know what? I bet you that there's people right here who you're just religious. You've gone to church. You believe that God exists, but you've been trusting your own goodness, hoping that you do more good than you do bad and that the good will tip the scale. And you've never made Jesus your Lord. You've never just received salvation as a gift. You still feel the burden, the weight of salvation on your own shoulders. You're trying to earn it. There's people in here that need to make Jesus your personal Lord. And then once you get born again, you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know, we've already had 124 people this last two services receive the baptism. But there's there's people here tonight, I'm sure, that need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of people are confused on this. And they think, well, I was baptized when I was a child. This isn't talking about water baptism. And it's not something that just happens automatically. Jesus told His disciples after He was raised from the dead, after they had already confessed Him as Lord, they were born again. He said, tarry in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they spoke with new tongues. And miracles began to happen. And they began to start giving witness to His resurrection with power. I can tell you that the baptism of the Holy Spirit radically changed my life. And I can also say this, that the Bible says that you cannot perceive the things of God on your own. Natural human beings cannot, you can't retain what I've talked about tonight. If you are here without the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you may have been stirred tonight, but you'll lose what I'm talking about unless you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one that reveals these deep things of God to you and shows you these kind of things. You just don't think this way on your own. Some of you are 30, 40, 50, 60 years old and have never thought the things that I've said tonight because you have only been in human understanding, in your own ability. You haven't been quickened by the Holy Spirit. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which includes speaking in tongues. That's not all that there is to it, but I guarantee you speaking in tongues is a vital part of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I know that some of you are offended right now because this isn't what you believe and you've been taught that this is of the devil or it's unnecessary. Well, I can't help what you've been taught. I'm telling you my personal testimony. I've got scripture to stand on. It has changed my life. And I'm saying in the name of the Lord that you need it. 
Some of you have seen me and you've heard my testimony. Some of you have seen me and heard my testimony and you like the results and you would like to have God raise your son from the dead and you'd like to have things happen. But now that I'm telling you what it is that produced this power in my life, you're saying, oh, I don't want that. That's like wanting the fruit but rejecting the root. I'm telling you, this is essential. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. How many of you in here already have the baptism of the Holy Spirit in speaking tongues? Can I see your hand? Would you recommend it? See, whether you know it or not, you are at one of those tongue talker meetings. You might have come here not realizing that because I don't scream and yell and act Pentecostal like most people. But you know what? You are here and now they're going to talk about you. So you might as well get the baptism of the Holy Spirit and enjoy the benefits. You're going to be criticized anyway. Just go ahead and get in on all of the benefits. How many of you in here need the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this gift of speaking in tongues, or you need to be born again? If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. And I want to pray with you and help you to receive. Anybody, here's people here in the back. If that's you, I want you to be bold.